Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I'm glad the final of Wimbledon was over so that maybe more of you came out tonight. It's lovely to worship God on this glorious sunny evening. And we turn in God's word to 1 Samuel 17. There was once a mighty giant. And the giant I refer to paraded himself in front of his opposition and with his fellow comrades hurled a war cry that was designed to intimidate and to crush their opponent's spirits. And it worked. The giant, so well-developed and highly skilled, struck such fear and trembling into his opponents that they under uninspiring leadership, did not know how to respond. And so the giant, almost single-handedly, demolished them in the battle that ensued. The giant's name was Lomu, Jonah Lomu. His fellow men, the All Blacks, the war cry known as the Hakka, and the defeated opposition, the English rugby team, led by Will Carling, their less than gracious in defeat captain. That was 16 years ago. Here in 1 Samuel 17, 3,000 years previously, two armies lined up against each other at the Valley of Elah, near Soko in Judah. The giant's name in this instance was Goliath of Gath, who stretched an incredible nine feet and nine inches in height and hurled a repeated war cry that reduced Israel's army of fighting men to a bunch of blubbering girls. And under the uninspiring leadership of King Saul, they did not know how to respond even after 40 days. And if God had so allowed, this particular giant could have gone on to demolish any and every person who came across his path. But if that had been the actual outcome of the battle, at this point, in history, then what would have prevented the whole world from forgetting further that there was a God in Israel? Look at verse 46. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. 
God's reputation and glory were at stake here. And God's good name was being trampled and forgotten under Saul. Saul had left God completely out of the picture by this stage. He did not even mention his name until David reminded him of it in verse 36. No one spoke about the God of Israel until David came on the scene. It was David who brought God back into the picture in verse 26. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Israel's problem was that they had forgotten God. There was no love for God, no crying out to him when the Philistines lined up against them. God was so firmly placed in the background at this point that he seemed irrelevant and worthless to them. And so all Israel could see from a natural human point of view was an impossible situation. And so the reputation of God's glory and power was at stake in Israel. And not only in Israel. Because through Israel's failures, God's reputation was also at stake among the nations. The Philistines had forgotten the greatness of Israel's God. And it wasn't all that long ago that God had toppled the Philistine idols and sent tumors upon those who went near the ark of the Lord that they had captured. And how had they responded back then? 1 Samuel 6 and 5 tells us that they said, Pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh did? Very interesting. The Philistines knew who Israel's God was then and were keenly aware of his power. But now it seems they had all but forgotten the God of Israel. And due to Saul's forgetfulness of God, he's put himself in place of God, and so much so that Goliath's war cry in verse 8 reflects this. Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? But whether God is acknowledged by man or not, he remains altogether glorious in his heavenly majesty. And he is jealous for his glory to be displayed and known and revered. And so he raises up a man after his own heart 
a man who has a similar burning passion for God's glory and who wants to make it known. And with the intervention of God's little champion, David, God was able to remind the nations and his own errant people that the battle is the Lord's. As we see in verse 47, he gives the victory. And it is not by sword and spear that he saves. So let's consider God's passion for his glory under these four headings. Opposition, proposition, ammunition, demolition. You can see I had fun with these. Opposition, proposition, ammunition, demolition. So firstly, opposition. The Philistines at this point are in clear opposition to Israel. And the opposition's challenge goes something like this. Look, we've spilled a lot of blood against each other in the past. So let's fight our battle like this instead. Our our champion represents us. Your champion represents you. They fight it out, and the winner takes all. Any ABBA fans here tonight? The winner takes it all, the loser standing small. In this case, however, rather than the winner taking it all and the loser standing small, the loser lies dead, and the winner takes all the opposition's people as slaves. The Philistines are obviously in opposition to God, which David finds implicit in Goliath's taunts in verse 36 and explicit in verse 45. There's Philistine opposition to Israel and to Israel's God. And when our hero arrives on the scene, there's clear opposition within Israel to David. And how hard it must have been for a godly shepherd boy to face such opposition from inside the camp of Israel and from his own brother too. Have you known opposition from within the camp? from within the church or within the family. Hurts far more, doesn't it? Than criticism from outside the camp. Verse 28, Eliab says to David, in effect, listen, you despicable creature. What good do you think you can do here? You're no use to the army. Little Bo Peep, go back to your sheep. And judging by David's reply in verse 29, now what have I done? 
This isn't the first time that his big brothers bullied him, is it? And in addition to Eliab's opposition, David faces King Saul's in verse 33. You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man since his youth. So in opposing David, Israel further proved their own opposition towards God. There's brotherly and kingly opposition to David and to David's God. Both the Philistines and the Israelites then are, in a sense, opposing God. Now, Hannah tells us in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 10 and following that those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. But God has made a covenant with Israel that he hasn't made with Philistia. And God reserves the right to show mercy on whom he wants to show mercy and to harden those he wants to harden including those within Israel, as Paul says in Romans 9.18. But God chose Israel by grace alone to be a nation of people to experience the lion's share of his mercy through the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant that was fulfilled in Christ, just as all God's promises are. So here the Philistines are going to get their just deserts. And God will begin to shatter them through the arm of a shepherd boy of about mid to late teens. Is what he's reckoned to be. Not uh, an eight or nine year old as the children's books would have us think. Somewhere about 16 or 17 A young lad, too young to join Saul's army, which had a minimum entry age of 20. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And we'll come back to that, to the importance of the Holy Spirit in this. But now for the proposition. As we read in verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Why was it David who proposed to fight Goliath and not Saul? or any of the other soldiers that he had tried to bribe in verse 25. Well, the ultimate reason was because of what happened immediately before chapter 17. What did David have 
that Saul didn't have and no one else had either. The answer is the Holy Spirit. Chapter 16, verse 13 tells us that from the day of David's anointing, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. And in the very next verse, you'll notice that we see the Holy Spirit has departed from King Saul. And as for the other Israelites, they didn't have the Holy Spirit either. Because previous to Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit dwelt predominantly in the midst of the camp of Israel and only entered into a select few of them for certain specific roles. Roles such as leading God's people. And it couldn't be done without the Spirit. And so David knew that he had been anointed by Samuel for the task of leading God's people. And he must have wondered what great things lay ahead for him that the Holy Spirit would enable him to do. And if you look at verse 37, you will see clearly that there was nothing blind about David's faith. His faith is rooted in the evidence of history. His heart never bypassed his head. Verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David's faith is infused with good logic and good arithmetic. Past rescue plus Holy Spirit equals future rescue. That's the way David gained his courage. And we can fuel our faith the same way. We can have a humble, yet confident and unshakable faith. Knowing we have the Holy Spirit within us. And are forgiven based on real historical evidence. That God is infallibly faithful to his promises. What is that historical evidence? An empty cross and an empty tomb. God has proved himself worthy of our trust. That's why we say he's trustworthy. What then of ammunition? Well, David elects to take a staff, a sling, and some stones. And he decides that Saul's armor will only hinder him. He looks pitifully unimpressive. 
especially to Goliath, who despises him. Verse 42. And we'll come back to Goliath's reaction. But much has been made of the fact that there were five smooth stones that David selected from the stream in verse 40. It has been suggested that they represent the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Worse still, they've been uh, used to represent the five points of Calvinism. And even more commonly, it's been argued that they represent the key elements of the faith, prayer, fellowship, Bible study, etc., However, this is to make the Christian equivalent of the five pillars of Islam. Nowhere in scripture is there designated five pillars of the faith. Now, the only significance that I can see in the number of stones is that David was hedging his bets, thought he might need five, but God knew he only needed one. But as we see, Goliath despised God's chosen one and was offended at his arsenal. And he seems particularly offended by the staff in David's hand. And he mockingly asks if David's going to beat him up with it. You're being called a Bible basher? There's something of that kind of mockery going on here. Goliath sees absolutely no threat in David. He's almost embarrassed that he's going to have to dispatch someone so young. What kind of glory would there be for him in that? His friends would be ribbing him for years. Hey, Goliath, you child killer. But I wonder if Goliath was so distracted by the staff that he overlooked David's sling and his collection of stones. He doesn't seem to have spotted them. But David's real weapon was Yahweh, the Lord. He knew that the battle was the Lord's, verse 47, and he would make him successful. And so David realized that despite Goliath's size, in the Lord's hands, David was a spiritual giant, and Goliath was a godless dwarf. And through David, God would restore his reputation in Israel and among the nations. God would bring glory and honor to his holy name. Through the apparent weakness of a youth with no sword, no spear, and no armor. How often is God's strength proved perfect 
in weakness. 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29 God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And then we have demolition and the giant's downfall. David rotates the sling with intent and releases a stone that was about the size of a tennis ball. Travelling anywhere between 90 and 150 miles per hour. Pretty much the speed that those things travel around at Wimbledon. But sorer if you get hit by a stone than a tennis ball. And one scholar describes the impact like this. And guys, listen up because we love this kind of detail, don't we? The rock was hurled with such great force that it crushed the frontal bone of Goliath's cranium and sank into his forehead. And if you're a bloke, admit it, you really just want to see that in super slow-mo on DVD, don't you? It was a deadly blow. And before I studied the text more closely, I used to think that it only stunned Goliath and David had killed him with a sword. But as you can see in verse 50, the stone killed him outright. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, without a sword in his hand. David struck down the Philistine and killed him. It was the fulfillment of his prophetic statement in verse 47 not by sword or spear. But he also prophesied in verse 46 that he would cut off his head as well. And so he did with Goliath's own sword. And with the severing of Goliath's head comes the Philistines' downfall. With our champion giant lying in pieces, David proves beyond a doubt that the Philistines have lost. Do they stick to the terms of their agreement? Not a chance. But their confidence is shattered. And instead of charging the Israelites in revenge for killing their champion, they turn around and run away in fear of becoming Israelite slaves. And because the agreement is broken, Israel has the right to charge after them and cut the Philistines down until their dead bodies are strewn across the landscape. 
And so God's wrath is channeled through his people in holy war onto his enemies. And again, this was fulfilled and is no longer permissible since the coming of Christ. Holy war has no place in the new covenant era. Now, as we move into thinking about what this passage means for us today and its place in its proper context in redemption history, I want us to consider our own opposition towards God, which comes so naturally to us. The Philistines and Israelites certainly don't have the monopoly on opposition to God. As human beings, we have been in opposition to God ever since Genesis 3, when Adam, our representative in the garden, chose to become autonomous, chose to oppose and to reject God by his own free will. And in Adam, all died. We all plunged into rebellion and opposition towards God. And so Paul can say in Romans 3, 9 and following, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And so every Jew and Gentile, by rights, deserves to remain in that condition and suffer its just penalty. But there was a proposition made for us by sheer grace from the one who is described in Revelation 13.8 as the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And I love these words from the Puritan John Flavel as he imagines the conversation that took place between the father and the son. No, it's not scripture, but it's reverent and helpful for us to ponder, I think. Quotes. Here you may suppose the father to say, when driving his bargain with Christ for you, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ returns. O my Father, such is my love too and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all your bills, I may see 
what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shall you require it. I will rather choose to suffer their wrath than they should choose to suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. But, my son, if you undertake it for them, you must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it, and though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. What a proposition Christ made for us when he looked into the future and saw our fallenness. When Adam failed, he was rejected. And a second Adam, the Lord's anointed, stepped up to be our new representative. And what was Jesus' ammunition? He came in weakness, didn't he? He had no physical weapons. He wore no armor. Nothing to protect him from the lashes of a Roman whip at his scourging. He looked no more like a champion than David did before his victory. But he set out towards the battle arena for us as our representative with a kind of passionate determination that we see reflected here in David. Luke 9.51 tells us that at the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Golgotha were Jesus' own valley of Elah. That is where he would fight his battle for our souls. But as we see David running towards the battle line, unencumbered by the weight of heavy armor, in verse 48, we remember that our shepherd king was weighed down by the weight of a cross as he struggled to reach his destination. And while David was described as ruddy and handsome in verse 42 and 16 verse 12, Jesus' appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. Isaiah 52, 14. And unlike David in his victory for Israel over Goliath, Jesus lost his life in winning the victory over Satan. 
by hanging on the cross and refusing to come down when people challenged him to do so. His demolition mission was complete when he delivered the knockout blow to Satan's tyranny. Tetelesti. It is finished. Paul says in Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Sin's payment was paid. Satan's power to deceive the nations was crippled. And his victory was our victory. He won the battle for his people. That's the gospel. A champion achieving for us what we could never achieve for ourselves. And, and God's passion for his glory is never ultimately displayed to the nations through imperfect men like David, but through great David's greater son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is not about what we can do for God, but what God's champion Jesus can do for us. God's little champion David, rather than merely acting as our example, first and foremost prefigures Christ for us and points us to our true champion. How long do you think David's example of taking on Goliath can inspire you to imitate his efforts. A day, perhaps, until you get home and fix yourself a cup of tea, more likely. I venture that for many, David's example doesn't inspire you as much as it will eventually depress you. You've tried copying great examples before, but in the end, it just makes you feel even more useless. Examples can only go so far. Only the gospel can transform us. What did it take to turn a bunch of withering wrecks into an army of God's people running forward with a great cry? Was it when they saw David's great example of courage? Not at all. It was when they saw the space between Goliath's head and his body. That's when their spirits soared. 
Come on, we've won! And they surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines and finished them off. Christ is risen! There are no bones. It's when we are assured that the victory has been won by our champion that we gain the confidence to engage in the fight. We don't fight to win the victory. We fight because the victory has already been won. It's just the cleanup. It's only the aftermath that we're faced with now. So whatever God has given us to face this week, this year, this lifetime, difficulties at work, unresolved conflicts in our family, friend to share Christ with, chronic pain to endure. I don't know. Whatever it is, we can move forward to meet those challenges with confidence and joy because God's anointed King has conquered we can charge forward knowing that the enemy has fallen and his demons are put to flight and all of our guilt is gone. Remind yourselves constantly of this liberating gospel. Don't put it in the background. It is the power of God for the salvation of and sanctification of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. So where is our champion now? He's preparing a room for you. Not because you fight courageously in every spiritual battle you encounter. Or plan to, please do, after this sermon's over. But because he fought as our, your anointed royal champion. And he delights to share his victory spoils with you. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are thrilled at the knowledge of your son's victory. Complete, secure. That cannot be undone. That no power in the universe, no hardness of heart 
no collaboration of nations can overcome. Thank you for sending your precious son, Jesus, to be our champion, to be our representative, so that we can claim an unworthy victory for ourselves through him. What a champion our Lord Jesus Christ is. And we worship you and we give you glory and we pray that you would gain glory for yourself through your Son and through the Spirit's work in this church and in the wider area of Dundee and Scotland and the nations. Assure us, Lord, of your great victory through your word and enable us to be transformed by it, to go forward and to clean up what needs to be done, a victory already achieved. So nerve us for the fight, we pray, and be our constant delight and guide. For Jesus' sake. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.